Good morning, good morning. Welcome to the podcast. Unfortunately, we are still doing these things from home uh, because of the, the heat and the smoke. The smoke has been really bad. We send our love and our prayers to all of those who have been evacuated, who have lost their homes. Uh, we know that at least 15 people have, have died because of the wildfires on the West Coast. We know that California has lost over 3 million acres as of Friday, and uh, it's just devastating. I mean, it's it's one thing that we know. We know we're doing a series on, on climate change. We do this every year. This is something that I think for um, most people that sort of follow the Mission Hills, uh, it's an issue that we we care about, that we pay attention to, and um, it's just, it's heartbreaking to, to see um, so much uh, devastation and, and to feel, to feel like when, when is this going to end or how, how bad is it going to get? So, um, just continued prayers for all of those and, and that are, um, really out there fighting, uh, these fires or, or, or really affected by them. And, um, as always, if, if you're somebody that is, uh, affected in one way or the other directly or indirectly, please don't, don't hesitate to, to reach out. Um, and we want to do anything we can and just be a support system uh, to who, whomever might need it. That said, this is week two of our series on climate change, On Fire, A Christian Awakening to the, the Climate Crisis, and it is Sunday, September 13th. Our verse for this week is going to be Matthew 5, 5. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The word of the Lord. All right, we're going to keep it short and sweet this week. Okay, so I, I think one of the major misconceptions around the climate change discussion as, as individuals, maybe as a society, and definitely as Christians, is our relationship to, to power. Uh, like we mentioned last week, um, the, those that have the most power, the most money, uh, by far have the most negative impact on the environment, use the most energy in those who are, uh, who are more poor, more vulnerable, obviously are, are most at risk to, to the effects of, of climate change. And in order to collectively solve this crisis that we find ourselves in as a uh, species, I think we have to understand, the, again, the size and the scope of the problem of climate change. Uh, more damage has been done to the environment, and I think I might have mentioned this last week, but more, more damage has been done to the environment since the UN created the IPCC in the last 30 years than of all of human history but up to that moment. Uh, similarly, like we must, like we have to wrap our minds around uh, the speed at which the climate is changing, which, depending on how you calculate, is a hundred times faster than any moment in human history. I mean, to to really think about how how crazy that is that the climate is changing a hundred times faster than any point in human history, in that we've done more damage. To, to the environment and to the planet just in my lifetime than in all of human history before that. Um, so we have, to, we have to kind of grapple with that size, scope, and speed of the problem to understand where does the power lie. If it's changing at a 100x, okay, 
who's changing it, how is it changing so fast, and then where do we identify that power located in order to dismantle that power structure. So this morning we're going to be talking about uh, a Christian perspective of nonviolence because that is a central, it's a central component to to the life and teachings of Jesus, particularly the, ser- the Sermon on the Mount, which we've addressed before at Mission Hills on different occasions when when Matthew 5 comes up in the lectionary, uh, turn the other cheek, walk the extra mile, when Jesus says, give him your coat too, love your enemies. These are all subversive teachings about an active, nonviolent practice. They demonstrate a core uh, strategy that can be utilized in, in our understanding um, in our understanding of our relationship to the environment and to uh, systems of power that are primarily responsible for damaging our environment. The, the climate conversation is, I think, unfortunately, often about what you can do as an individual to contribute to taking care of the environment or to not have a negative impact on climate change. But I, this, is a, this is a fundamental misunderstanding and a flawed American individualistic perspective that places all of the responsibility for climate change on the individual, which allows for those, uh, those in positions of power to continue to, to damage and devastate, destroy the environment for profit at that unfathomable scale. All while we kind of gaslight each other in the public that the, that the issue is really about the individual caring for the environment as a, as a kind of personal moral responsibility. If we don't understand where the damage and, and destruction is being uh, carried out at the level that it's being carried out, a hundred times the amount that individuals could do, uh, then we're not going to be able to be effective in dismantling and uh, mitigating climate change. Uh, it's another way to think about this is it's not all that different than our current uh, situation with the pandemic, because you see um, news outlets and uh, media politicians they they'll show and, and rush to blame, uh, for instance, college students. We've seen clips all week. College students are back. They're throwing parties. They're gathering together. We did this in the spring when spring breakers were on the beach, and we we look at them and we just say. Oh, wow. look at them. Look, how, look at how irresponsible they are. Instead of focusing on the failures of college administrators and elected officials to outline clear guidelines and restrictions that would have likely prevented these events from ever occurring. So um, we have to focus our attention in the right area. So uh, I'm making a similar argument when it comes to, to climate change that we have to identify as Christians who are seeking to practice the way of Jesus and nonviolence in the world, we have to take those principles and understand where power is, where power is at. Um, you know, even well-meaning politicians, when we're thinking about the climate change, uh, well-meaning politicians that believe in science and insist on climate change is real, um, they're doing more damage than entire populations of people could ever do on their own. I mean, just take one example from this week, Gavin Newsom. Um, 
you know, he, he tweeted several times about uh, the fires and how climate change is real. He's a very well-meaning politician. But Gavin Newsom ended the moratorium on fracking in April, this April. And since then, since the pandemic, he's green-lighted 48 new fracking projects in the midst of the pandemic, in the worst year of fires in California state history. So, you know, in this instance, Gavin Newsom is doing more damage by giving Chevron new contracts to start fracking than whole communities of people could do. So um, rather than uh, misplace our focus on individuals needing to, to take care of the environment as some sort of measure of their personal moral responsibility, um, which can be easy for Christians to do, and American Christians, Western Christians in particular, because we're all about, we've been so ingrained to think that um, the teachings of Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount are all about moral, personal responsibility. And Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. I've always thought it's interesting that Thomas Merton translated this text as, blessed are the nonviolent, for they will inherit the earth. Jesus' call in the Sermon on the Mount is not simply about an invitation into nonviolence and love for creation, every person, every animal, every created thing. It's, it's also a warning that to live violently is to destroy the world. So if we look at this text, blessed are the nonviolent for they will inherit the earth. It's a warning to say, if, if we live violently, there will be no earth to inherit. It's a way, Jesus is, is mapping out a way to live in community with each other. And as I mentioned, Western Christianity has a hard time understanding the, the interrelatedness of uh, humans to the created world because we've developed theologies that see ourselves at, um, as the center of the universe. Uh, instead of seeing, and this is in... Um, it's called the anthropocentric worldview. But we are just a, we know, you, you all know this, that we are just a small portion of the greater ecosystem, not the center of it. We belong to the earth. The earth does not belong to us. Uh, in addition, Western Christianity has largely individualized that, that personal moral responsibility that just make Jesus' teachings um, personal ethical guidelines that are separated from the power structures that oppress people. And we have to see those um, in the Sermon on the Mount, those teachings as, uh, as guidelines for how we approach and dismantle those power structures. Uh, one of the radical aspects of Jesus's life and teaching is his resistance to the powers that oppress people. When he starts his ministry in Luke 4, for instance, he announces his ministry as liberation to the poor, the powerless, the imprisoned. Those groups of people are suffering under the weight of structures and systems that dehumanize people. They're not, he's not preaching for, for liberation uh, separated from those uh, power structures. So, so if we're to solve the climate crisis, we must liberate individuals from systems that are doing us in the environment harm. It, it's, it can't be about um, taking care of the environment as some new guidelines for personal moral responsibility. So uh, you should go to church, you should uh, care about social justice, and you should um, know these things that you should do to care for the environment. No, we have to see uh, our role as Christians 
embedded within the system of power structures that are um, oppressing and dehumanizing us as individuals. They are threats to our humanity and our um, common life together. They're threats to that, that way of being in, in even our, our, our children and our, our grandchildren's uh, ability to have a, a future, rely on our understanding um, of this practice of nonviolence as core to our, our lives as Christians. We have to extend the gospel ethic to our resistance to powers that oppress the planet because we have to recognize that um, we are humans that are interconnected with the planet uh, and there's a set of post-industrial systems doing violence to us and to our planet. And violence being done to our planet is, if we see ourselves as interconnected and interrelated, Violence to our planet is violence to us. And, the, and we know that uh, uh, these are mostly per perpetrated by um, large multinational uh, companies. So we cannot separate our ethic of who we are as Christians um, and our sense of um, spirituality from the whole and from these power structures that are currently opp oppressing people. We have to re-understand that the line from Jesus that blessed are the nonviolent for they will inherit the earth is a call that we have to be a certain way in the world for us to inherit, inherit the earth, for us to be able to, to have an earth to, to pass down to, to, to my kids and my grandkids. Uh, to be nonviolent is to be in an active awareness. To be in an active awareness, um, just like Jesus, it involves knowing where the power and violence exist prominently um, in the society and in the system, and then mobilizing principles of nonviolence uh, to undo that harm. And that goes back to the uh, walk an extra mile, give a give a man your coat as well. He knows where the power lies in those structures. And we've talked about that several times in Mission Hills. So uh, if, if we need to have a conversation on, on Sunday about that, uh, remind me. Uh, but Jesus, in those teachings, understands where the power structure and uh, systems exist. And then he's exploiting those in order to liberate people nonviolently. So we have to be participants in nonviolent action in our personal and civic lives, whether that's understanding what animal agriculture does to the planet and the violence of the industrial meat industry or how elected officials and corporations possess power to reverse climate devastating legislation that threatens uh, our human right to have access to clean air, clean water, uh, for our grandchildren to have a planet to live on. Uh, Walter Wink, who uh, was a Christian activist, nonviolent activist, he says, Jesus did not advocate nonviolence merely as a technique for outwitting the enemy, but just as a means of opposing the enemy in such a way as to hold open the possibility of the enemies becoming just as well. Both sides must win. We are summoned to pray for our enemy's transformation and to respond to ill treatment with a love that not only is godly, but also can be only found in God. With a love that is not only that not only is godly, but also can only be found in God. Uh, I want to talk briefly about um, capitalism and in the illusion of of more, and we can we can talk more about that on Sunday because 
I think that this is a really interesting and not often addressed aspect of this conversation. And it involves a principle, uh, one of the uh, principles of, of nonviolent action, which is opting out, Stop, stopping our being aware of where power lies, and then stopping our participation in those systems. And one of the things about uh, capitalism and green technology that uh, is interesting and also problematic is that you take a violent system uh, such as uh, consumer capitalism that's all about consumption, it's all about more, and you just replace um, dirty energy with quote-unquote clean energy. So let, let's give an example. So, so green technology, even in a, in a way, is not, what I'm trying to say, green technology in a way is not, um, is not the end-all, be-all solution. So you don't just take um, uh, power, dirty power sources like uh, coal and natural gas and replace them with solar alone. Like that, that, that's not enough to, to solve all of our problems. And it's part of this false optimism of, of progress in capitalism that just solar panels, wind farms, and electric vehicles will, um, will save us. Uh, that is the illusion of capitalism, which is more, more, more. Well, we just have to buy more stuff in order to, to get where we want to go. And we know that this is uh, not true in, in a sense as a, as, a, as a full solution because of the pandemic. What happened when the pandemic hit? We had to stop driving, people stopped going to work, and uh, the air cleaned up because there wasn't as much uh, emissions. Well, we know now that uh, emissions are back to pre-pandemic levels because people have gone back to work and people are driving again. So we have to do a multifaceted effort when it comes to understanding what nonviolent action is as Christians, and a huge part of that nonviolent ethic that Jesus is teaching us is to figure out where the power lies, and if opting out is the best solution, then we have to opt out rather than buy more stuff. Um, capitalism can, can keep rolling if we, um, in destroying the environment, many people have pointed this out, but uh, it takes a lot of natural resources to make electric cars. So yeah, we want to replace electric cars, uh, old cars with electric cars, um, but that isn't the whole solution because it takes a lot of energy and a lot of fossil fuels to, to make electric vehicles. Um, and so we have, to, we have to scale back certain things in a nonviolent practice rather than just buy more and add more. Um, companies have a financial incentive to keep to try, keep trying to sell us stuff. So uh, if, if Ford or Chevy moves from uh, selling uh, big trucks, well, they still got to make money, so they're going to try to sell you electric vehicles, okay? So there's nothing bad about that, but it's, we're, it's a an illusion of capitalism if we think that that is solving our problem. It's not. We've lost 90... I saw a statistic this week that we've lost 90% of the fish in our oceans. Uh, and there was a study that came out a couple of days ago on September 10th that uh, in the last 50 years, in the last 50 years, we've lost almost 70% of all animal species. In 50 years, we've killed almost uh, three quarters of all animal species in just 50 years. Um, so we have, to, we have to stop. We have to step away from systems of production. 
We have to not fall um, into the illusion of capitalism that, um, you know, Amazon wants us to be happy that they're moving to electric trucks so that we can buy more stuff and then deliver it with the electric trucks. But that also comes at a huge cost, right? How many fossil fuels is it going to take to create an entire fleet of electric vehicle trucks for Amazon? Um, so one of the principles of nonviolence is, is turning the other cheek, which is just a way of dislodging the position of the powerful. So in, in each situation, we have to figure out ways to dislodge the positions of the powerful. And I know I step on toes when I say this, um, but I usually point out animal agriculture in our obsession because it's a great example of how we can just step off and, and opt out. Uh, we know that uh, Americans in particular are obsessed with meat eating because in it, and it's a sensitive subject because it touches on our, our deep patterns of our culture and our identity and our habits that are actually directly harmful through, to the planet through participation in a very obviously violent and harmful power structure. Um, and if you dare, I mean, you just can't talk about meat because if you dare bring up the idea that eating meat is somehow bad for the environment, Ted Cruz is going to tweet at you all day. And uh, we already know that Donald Trump and, and Mike Pence have been campaigning this year uh, on uh, liberals taking your cows away. So we know that this is a sensitive subject, but because it's such a sem sensitive subject, I think that's uh, an easy thing to approach because it's already sort of in the cultural zeitgeist and dialogue. Okay, well, why is animal agriculture problematic? Why is meat e eating problematic? Um, animal agriculture is and has been it's just a force, a massive force for destroying the planet. Uh, the, the meat industry alone is devastating the planet's water resources, our land, our rainforest, wildlife, the oceans, the air. Uh, just in the U.S., the animal agriculture adds 130 times, 130 times more waste than humans do. Just in the U.S., 130 times more waste. So um, half, of, just think about this, half of the, uh, the water that Californians use on a daily basis is associated to meat and dairy production. The leading cause of rainforest destruction is livestock and feed crops to feed livestock. So they tear forests down so that they can grow crops to feed livestock. Uh, I mean, it's just devastating the planet. Uh, it's estimated that 137 plant and animal and insect species are lost every day due to rainforest destruction. Uh, worldwide, more than 6 million animals are killed every hour. More than six million animals are killed every hour. Um, when we think about this on an individual level and what our personal, even going to our personal impact on the environment, a person who follows a plant-based diet produces less than 50% of the carbon dioxide, uses one eleventh of the oil, one thirteenth of the water, and one eighteenth of the land compared to a meat eater. 50% less carbon dioxide. One eighteenth less land, uh, and and I don't want to point out these statistics to to blame us as in individuals because 
this is a sermon about where, where does power lie and what are the messages that are coming from our society, our culture, um, where is that power? And then how can we dislodge, using this ethic of nonviolence, how can we dislodge that power? Uh, but it, we have to empower each other to realize that, that we participate in all kinds of violent systems based on messages, and particularly around um, you know, what we eat or how oftentimes we find our personal identities even in the foods we eat, uh, how we're habitually hardwired into behavioral patterns and all of us are misled by marketing campaigns and when it comes to food, uh, quote unquote, public health messages that were often paid and still are paid for by the meat and dairy industries. Um, we have to start seeing all of this as a violence toward us and toward our, our, our future. Um, Jesus said, blessed are, are the nonviolent for they will inherit the earth. The only way there will be an earth for us to inherit is if we start questioning, resisting, and dismantling these systems of violence that are literally killing us so some companies can profit. Uh, remember that we, we belong to the earth and that harm that is done to the oceans or the animals in the name of profit is a violence against all of us and our ability to survive and thrive as a species on this planet. We have to listen to Jesus' urging us to love our enemies is to not remain oppressed by them, but to transform our suffering into peace. To inherit the earth, we must love the entire earth and everything in it. We must have a deep awareness of our own lives being interconnected to all of creation. This awareness produces humility. It moves us into compassionate resistance to these structures that are doing violence to us in the most vulnerable on our planet. Uh, Pope Francis says, um, one which approaches life with attentiveness, which is capable of being fully present without thinking of what comes next, which accepts each moment as a gift from God, must be lived to the full. Jesus taught this attitude when he invited us to contemplate the lilies of the field and the birds of the air, or when seeing the rich young man and knowing his restlessness, he looked at him with love. He was completely present to everyone and everything, and in this way, he showed us the way to overcome unhealthy anxiety, which makes us superficial, aggressive, and compulsive consumers. And one of the things I think Francis is urging in that quote is realizing the interrelatedness of all things, that love is the driving force connecting us. And if we have that attentiveness that he talks about or the awareness that, that I mentioned earlier, it allows us to step back, to not be, as he says, compulsive consumers. It gives a perspective that um, realizes that we can practice a way of peacemaking, nonviolence, that this is an active resistance, whether that's doing something or opting out. But it all comes from this humble awareness of liberation. Jesus's call is not simply an invitation into a hope or hopefulness um, that one day, um, you know, we might all be one or, or love creation. Um, it is a warning that to live violently is to destroy the world and that we must live nonviolently to inherit the earth. Blessed are the nonviolent, for they will inherit the earth. 
May we have ears to hear and eyes to see, and may we move towards liberation in the healing of ourselves, in our planet, in our future. All right, I think we're going to leave it there for today. Uh, thank you so much for listening. I hope to see you all on Sunday, and we will be back on Zoom on Wednesday for week two of our James Cone book study on the cross and the lynching tree. Hope to see you at both of those, and uh, be well. See you soon. Thank you.